Thank you, Rosemary. So well said. Some great information, a good story. So we can know a little bit of our roots, where this church has come from, and we'll know, we'll better know where we're going. I'd like to take you back to circa 1991, I believe. I was a wee lad of 13 years about that stage. Go lay a brick for God. That was the mantra. That was the slogan of an organization, Teen Missions International. I know that... um, Angie Williams has a history with teen missions as well. But go lay a brick. That was the slogan, and that excited me. And so I wanted to respond to that message. Go lay a brick. Teen missions every year to this day sends thousands of teenagers around the world to dozens of countries every summer. And I was inspired by another young man's story that I heard in church, and I wanted to do that as well. It just so happened that I was just barely old enough to reach the, to, 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 to the bottom age limit. And so I poured through the catalog and <clears throat> I decided uh, to go. I was going to go and I was going to go to the island nation of Fiji. Why, was I, why did I choose Fiji, you ask? Well, I chose based on the same way that any 13-year-old would choose such an endeavor. I thought they had a cool flag. So off I went. The tri- I, ran, I raised thousands of dollars from my friends, family, and church community. And then the, trip, the, the, the experience began in Merritt Island, Florida, an island just off the east coast of Florida, where we, there was a two-week-long boot camp in the swamps with the mosquitoes, sleeping in tents with armadillos, swimming and bathing in a pond with an alligator nearby. No joke. Well, it was actually... Despite the fun that was had by most people, I was miserable. I hated every second of that two weeks. I was the youngest. I was the smallest. I was very immature at that point. Not mature enough to spend two weeks in that environment away from home, let alone an entire summer away from home. I spent more time in the counselor's office than I think I spent in my tent. Uh, pestering him. I was just his shadow, and I know I annoyed him to no ends. But nevertheless, I somehow managed to graduate. I made it through the two weeks. And what happened next was either was either a terrible curse or a tremendous blessing. I'll, I, don't, I still don't know which. Our team departed early, early, early in the morning on a flight out of Orlando's airport. So uh, in order to do that, we, they bussed us to the airport the night before, and we spent the night in the airport on hard airport furniture. And I, minutes went by. I watched the second hand tick away, and I was miserable, and I was anxious, and I was upset, and I was tearful, and I was watching all of my friends and team leaders sleep Minutes turned into hours. Eventually, the sun started to peek above the eastern horizon through the windows, and I lost it. I freaked out. I was a puddle on that airport floor. It wasn't going to happen. 
It wasn't going to happen. Each of us, each of us teenagers, had a Ziploc baggie uh, filled with cash. And that cash was to last us for the summer, for any incidentals we needed or any uh, souvenirs we might want to pick up. My team leaders, one of them, uh, I don't remember his name, but I remember his face very well and how just, just loving and kind he was to me. He got in this big duffel bag, and he got my Ziploc baggie out, walked me over to an airport kiosk, and we paid in cash for a one-way ticket to Detroit, Michigan. And so while my team got on that airplane to go to L.A., I was on an airplane to go north to Detroit, and I was relieved. Immediately, I fell asleep, passed out with just exhaustion and relief. But at the same time, I was terribly sad because I was going to go do these big things for God. And now what? I am a failure. I was going to have to face those people who gave me all that money. That's not refundable. I was going to have to tell them what happened. And I was going to have to face God. After all, he was going to be so proud of me. Now what? Now what must he think of me? Many of you know what failure feels like. Assume if you spend much time at all on this world, all of you know what failure feels like. Of course, it's one thing to fail yourself, your goals. It's another thing to fail your family. And it's even more kind of crushing to feel like you have failed God. Maybe you know what that feels like. Uh, I want to, as we go to Romans 15 today, the Apostle Paul, he, he's getting ready to wrap up the letter. And he's going to talk about some of his future plans. He's also going to talk about how, how proud he is and some of the successes that he's experienced. And I started by talking about failure because I think the way that we approach failure, the way that we deal with failure is very much the exact same as the way that Paul approaches success and the way that Paul deals with success. And I think you'll see that as we read the scripture and as we unfold it today. Um, uh, let us go together to God's Word. And uh, we don't always do this, but sometimes we do, and it is appropriate. Just out of respect and reverence for God's Word, why don't we rise, and I'll read it uh, for us all. I'm going to start in verse 14 from Romans chapter 15. Paul starts out stating his satisfaction. He's going to be proud. Ready? I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Gentiles are simply the non-Jewish people. Paul had a unique calling in the early church. He was called to take the gospel of Christ into the non-Jewish world. Verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. 
for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ already has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's calling was also unique in this regard. Not everybody is supposed to uh, focus on areas where Christ has not been preached, but Paul particular, particularly was uh, commissioned by Jesus as a missionary, as an apostle, to go where they had not yet heard the word of Jesus. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. He's talking to the Christians in Rome, remember? But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. So you see what's happening. Paul is taking gifts from the churches that he has had a hand in planting back to the motherland, if it were, back to the the home of Christianity, where it all began, back to the church in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, the Jews, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this gift of your word and for how you continue to speak to your people through it. Down through the ages to the end of time, you have given us all we need to know. Father, as we, can t- as we contemplate here your servant, the Apostle Paul, and how he viewed his successes, how he viewed his mission, how he viewed his future, God, I pray that you would give us all a, a healthy vision Teach us how to be proud, what to be proud of, and what to do with that pride that we have in you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, Paul didn't make it back to Rome and Spain, at least not the way that he thought he was going to. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He spent time there under house arrest before being shipped to Rome. Whether he ever made it to Spain or not, 
That's a matter for his church historians and uh, commentators to debate. We don't know. But I want you to see a few things. If you look at your notes page, I think I put five things on there. And the way I've done it, it's uh, uh, kind of like a chiasm. A chiasm is a, is a structure in especially Hebrew writing, also in Greek writing though, where, where it'll start with one thing on either end and then it kind of builds to the thing in the middle is the biggest thing. So you see I've done it with font sizes. I've started with a small font and then I build up and the middle one is the biggest font and then we build back down to smaller fonts. As the first thing I want you to write down, it's important, it's not the most important thing, that's why it's a little font, but it's important nevertheless. I want you to write this down. We as Christians are to have something to be proud of. <coughs> write that down. Have something to be proud of. Whenever I do a funeral, whenever I do a funeral, I always uh, make it a point to say at some point in the service something like this. A funeral service is a wake-up call to us all. A funeral service is a reminder, an uncomfortable reminder, something we don't want to think about, but something we need to think about nonetheless, that this that we see here, this deceased person. This is our story as well. And there will come a day when there will be a service like this for each one of us. Those who love us will put us in a box. They will, hopefully, say nice things about us. And then they will take us to a field, put us in the ground. They will walk away. And we will be forgotten. Maybe not right away. Your loved ones and your kids and your grandkids, they're still going to remember you as long as they live. You'll live on in their memories and in their heart. But within a generation or two, all of us will be forgotten. If we live on, if our memory lives on at all, it might be as a, a fill-in-the-blank line in somebody's family tree that they do their genealogy research. But other than that, that's our future. And so I don't say that to depress people. I say that as a reality check. Does it not make sense to have something to be proud of that will last? To have something to be proud of that will last. All of us as Christians, we need to think about that. What is the ambition? What is the greatest goal, the, the, the greatest desires of your life? Is it security? Is it comfort? Is it wealth? Is it happiness? Is it ease? Is it convenience? Is it accumulation of stuff? What is the greatest thing? Or is it, or is it the kingdom of God? It makes sense for it to be the kingdom of God because you see, brothers and sisters, that will never die. That will never be forgotten. Your kingdom will be forgotten. But the kingdom that Christ is bringing in will last forever. And it only makes sense to have something in your resume, for lack of a better word, the resume that is your life, to have something in there that is building into the kingdom that will last forever. Have something to be proud of. Now, once you have something to be proud of, be proud. You don't hear preachers say that very often, do you? Pride is a, is a vice, right? Not a virtue. But I, I read it in the text. We, said, we, we heard it in the text. Uh, was, uh, Paul says it himself, that he is proud, right? 
What did he say? Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Verse 17. Be proud of your work for God. You may not have planted churches all over the, uh, uh, the Middle East or all over the Eastern European theater, but, but, but be proud in your work for God. What have you done? What have you done? Have you grown in, in faith and in righteousness and in joy and in gratitude and in discipleship? Have you grown any? Since you first came to Christ, since you first put your faith in Him, be proud of that. Be proud of it. It's okay. Relax, right? Kind of, it's okay. Puff up your chest a little bit because that's a really cool thing. That's a really cool thing that's happened in your life. Have something to be proud of and then be proud. And then the third thing, this is the biggest thing, the part of our pyramid, right? The chiasm, the middle of the chiasm. The next verse that Paul says, see, you might think that, that I'm saying go lay bricks for God, do something big for God, save the world, uh, whatever. No, not quite. Because the next verse that Paul says after verse 17 is verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Have something to be proud of and be proud of that thing, but be proud of Christ. There's a very, very, very fine line between being proud of you because of you and being proud of you because of what Christ has done in you and through you. Can I say that one more time? You with me? There is a very fine line between being proud of you because of you and being proud of you because of what Christ has done in you and through you. I want you to be proud, and I want you to be proud of you. But not because of you. I want you to be proud of you because of what Christ has done in you and through you. See, you don't have anything to be proud of on your own. I wouldn't be a very good Presbyterian minister if I didn't say something like that, right? You don't have anything to be proud of. Even if you could do something, even if you could do a thing that was 100% good for 100% all the right reasons, you can't, but let's say that you could. That thing, that perfectly done, executed thing, would still die with you in a generation or two be forgotten. Right? There is no reason to be proud of you because of you. God does not need you to go lay a brick for him. He does not need you to save anyone. He does not need you to bring his kingdom in. He does not need you to love him. He does not need you to obey him. He does not need you to do anything. He did not consult you before he put the stars where they go. He did not consult you. He did not ask your opinion before he came up with the plan of how he was going to save creation by coming in and dying on a cross. He does not need you. But this is so cool. This is so cool. He loves you. And God loves you because you know what? he loves to see you grow. He loves to see you try and fail and try and fail and try and succeed. He loves that process so much that he's given you a lifetime to do it. 
and a lifetime to grow. And then he loves you so much that he's given you the privilege, the honor that almost all of God's church building activities from the first, from, from whenever, the, from Adam and Eve, right? Almost all of his church building activities have been done through discernible human means. Not whiz bang miracles, flash in the pan, right? But discernible human means. Individual saints wake up day after day and they decide, I'm going to live for the Lord today. I'm not according to the culture. And they go and they make decisions based upon that. Individual saints decide to take a deep breath, get up their courage, and, and bring up a, 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 a faith-based conversation, a religious conversation, a Jesus conversation with somebody in their life. Sunday rolls around. Individual musicians work up music that they want God's people to sing together. Pastors prepare sermons, right? Missionaries visit. Monies are given. Deacons serve. Elders pray and study together and lead and make decisions. Churches are planted, and through it all, Christ's church grows and multiplies, and his kingdom gets bigger, and lives are changed, all of it through discernible human means, little tiny steps that people take. But make no mistake, it's Jesus Christ himself who is conducting it all, like a, like a, like a, like a symphony orchestra, a massive symphony orchestra. He's directing all the parts. He is the one doing it. Be proud of what Jesus has done in you. Now, Paul goes on to talk about what his future has in store. I want you to be proud also of your future. You don't know what's coming in your future, do you? But I want you to be proud of it anyways. Look at what's happening now in Paul's letter as he's writing. His, his work here that God's given him, the special work to take the gospel where the gospel's never been to the Gentile nations... His work in this region is done. His work in this region is done. We have many different uh, reactions that we have when, when, when our work is done. When it comes time to retire or to move on, to change, excuse me, to change scenery. Some people, they're afraid. They're afraid and they get their heels dug in and they just stay. They stay longer than they should. They stay longer than the job that they should. They stay longer... Um, in a ministry that they should. And it could be a pastorate or it could even be something simple like a committee chair or an eldership. There's a season for all these things. And staying longer than you know your season, it's not good for anybody. Paul knows that his season... But, but Paul doesn't say, oh, well, I'm useless to everybody now. Oh, well, woe is me. There's no point to my life anymore. No way. Paul doesn't do that. He looks to his future with optimism and with hope. What's God have for me next? Well, I got this money. I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. And then he makes plans. He makes plans beyond that. What else might God... Well, I don't think the gospel's made it to Spain yet. So I'm going to do that. And a number of times, Paul gets course corrections, either by the Holy Spirit or by a shipwreck or something. He's got plans, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. You know what they say. But nevertheless, he's thinking about his future, and he's proud of it. He doesn't know what's going to happen exactly, but he's proud of that future. This is where Christian hope comes from. You need to understand what God has done in your life. Paul, in another letter, writes uh, 
1 Corinthians, I think it is. He, eh, no, it's not. He who began a good work in you, I think I wrote it down. I just had a brain. My brain just went blank. Philippians, Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Not only has Jesus done really cool things in your life, but he's going to do cool things in your life tomorrow. Think about that and expect it. Think about that and expect it to happen. Imagine, how many years do you have left on this world? How many do you think? You don't have to answer that out loud, but you probably have some ballpark in your head. How much more gracious are you going to be? How much more grateful are you going to be when you get to the end? How much better is your marriage going to be? How much uh, more are you going to love God's word? How much more are you going to want to spend time in prayer? How much more are you going to look forward and not dread the end of this life? All those great things. I haven't mentioned any bricklaying yet, have I? I haven't mentioned any building up of a church or a nonprofit or changing the world for Jesus, right? Don't worry about that so much. He's going to change the world with or without you, okay? Don't worry about that so much. But focus on what's he doing in you and be optimistic. Be excited about that. Expect it to happen. Expect it to happen. Be proud of your future. And this brings us to the last point. You remember, of course, my story about Teen Missions International. I started talking about failure because I want to end talking about failure. What about our failures? I want you to be proud of those too. Be proud of failure. That's the last thing I want you to write down. Be proud of your failures. It's easy to think that Paul had it all together. Success after success after success. I mean, half of our New Testament's written by the guy. He planted churches all over the place. Amazing things, right? But no, Paul didn't have it all together. Paul failed as much, probably more, than he succeeded. And that's why I asked Rosemary to read the text from 2 Corinthians 12 that I did. I will go on boasting, but I will boast in the things that show my weaknesses. You think, Stop for a minute and just think about how crazy that is. How often do you boast in the things that highlight your weaknesses? Just think about that for a second. Why would somebody boast in something that highlights his weaknesses? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. The weaker you are, the bigger what God has done in you will seem both to yourself and to the world. The weaker, the less deserving, the more unable you are, the more incredible God's love and grace in your life is to you and to anybody else with eyes to see. Think about this. Why, why did God save you? <clears throat> I'm going to close with this, but I want you to think about this thought too. Why did God save you? Do you know this makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world? Why God saved you? Every other religion, every other religion is an attempt to control the cosmos, to control God, to get God to do stuff for you. And some traditions in Christianity fall into this trap too, Right? I went to church all my life. I did all the right things. Now, God, you owe me. Yeah, it's easy to get into that, right? No, 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 no. Christian, that's not why God saved you. God did not save you because he needed your love. 
He did not need your obedience. He did not need your affirmation. Some other religions in the world, that's what the, the gods create human beings to serve them, right? There's nothing that we can do for God. He needs no service. So why did he create you and why did he save you? God created you out of the overflow of his love. He created you to be with him. He created you to be with him. And now I'm not very fond of the phrase love the sin, love the sinner, hate the sin. You know that phrase? I'm not very fond of that phrase because I don't think it's possible for us human beings to do that. But it is possible for God to do that. That's precisely what God does. And he can love you 100% without abandon while not wanting anything to do with your sin. Because he decided to save you while you were still a sinner. Why would he do that? Because he wanted to be with you. To be with you. Because of that, you are free to succeed. And you are free to fail. And God's love for you will not change one iota either way. You with me? I'm going to say that one more time. You are free to succeed. And you are free to fail. And God's love for you will change how much? How much? Zero. Either way. Take a deep breath. You feel that burden just, it's gone. It's gone. I'm going to leave you with an uh, encouragement, good words from a guy named Henry Nowen. He says this. He says, to pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray is to let that voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and let that voice resound in your whole being. Love it. If you keep that in mind, you can deal with an enormous amount of success as well as an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity because your identity is that you are beloved. It took me decades after my teen missions failure to get that. Decades. Isn't that sad? Long before your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, your teachers, your church, or any people touched you in a loving way as well as in a wounding way, long before you were rejected by some person or praised by somebody else, that voice has always been there. That love was there before you were born and will be there after you die. That's as good a word as any as I can think of to end on. Beloved. 